You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. You guys can be seated. Uh, Just a moment. um, Josh Brown is going to come and bring the word for us. Josh Brown and his wife, Bree, and kids all serve at Redeeming Grace Church in Rapid City. And... uh, Stefan just wanted me to mention that uh, we've been partners and friends in ministry for a long time and that uh, we've, we did financially partner with Redeeming Grace uh, in the early days and just uh, continue to be a resource for one another. So thankful for Josh to come and bring the word. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Greetings from Redeeming Grace in Rapid City. Uh, yeah, it's a real joy to be with you, and uh, we'll be in Philippians chapter 1. I really uh, am excited about this passage and the series that you're going through. I hope that it nourishes your soul. Uh, we have a beautiful passage today. I'm grateful when Stefan throws a softball over the plate. This is an easy one to hit. So on the back of the bulletin is, uh, is just the outline. Uh, you can pretty much, I'm just going to say that, but it's going to take me a little bit of time to say it, uh, but it's going to be a beautiful time together. I don't know if you've heard the name Corrie Ten Boom before, but she was a survivor of the Holocaust. Her and her family uh, was a refuge, a hiding place for uh, Jewish people hiding from the Nazis. And uh, her book, A Hiding Place, is a really famous book. And um, eventually her family was caught and taken to a concentration camp, and she was the only survivor. But she says this, she tells this about, this is a story from her. She says, often I have heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain at our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark and there was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Corey concludes, there is an ocean of love available everywhere, and there is plenty for everyone. May God grant that you never doubt that victorious love, whatever the circumstances. I think that captures well what Paul is trying to get the Philippian Christians to believe as well. And Paul is writing from prison a Roman prison writing to his friends in Philippi. I know Stefan has already covered some of that, this unusual church planting team of, uh, of, of Lydia, uh, a high-class, probably wealthy um, woman, and a gruff, rough jailer put together, perhaps also this, uh, this slave girl, the weirdest church planting team that you can imagine, but they're brought together by the gospel, and they're brought together in the things that they have, no earthly things in common, really, They should not be together, and yet they are because of Christ, and the Philippian church ends up being one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament, maybe because what brought them together was not anything other than Christ and Christ himself, and uh, and that served as the unity of their church. Steve Lawson says, the end of your life must be secure before before the present can be stable. It is only when you know that death will usher you into the presence of God that you will live with fearless faith. And that's what Paul has. Paul has an un shakable certainty about how his destiny will end up, 
about his future and his eternity. So the temporary circumstances of being taken out of ministry, being accused, being falsely accused, being persecuted, being thrown in prison, none of that shakes ultimately his great confidence because he knows the end of the story. He knows where his joy lies. And he wants to, he wants to infuse that into these Philippians. This joy that he has, even in a Roman prison, he wants to infuse to these Philippian believers because they really can have it. They really can have invincible joy. And so I want to just point out to you in verses 18 through 21, five reasons for invincible joy. Five reasons for Paul's invincible joy. And these are not exclusive to Paul. These are the same, these are the same things that you can rest your invincible joy on, regardless of circumstances. So read with me Philippians 1, 18 through 21. It says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's, let's pray just one more time and ask the Lord to penetrate our hearts with these truths. Oh God, we come before you and we, are, we have so many things to be discouraged, concerned about, real things, things that you're concerned about as well. And, and it can be easy for life circumstances, world circumstances, relationships to steal our joy. And so Lord, we pray that you would teach us from Paul what we really do have if we have a relationship with Jesus. And God, I pray that it would get deep into our hearts, deep into our minds, deep into our emotions, this invincible joy that rests on unshakable truths. So God, help us to put our confidence there. And as we are concerned about the things we ought to be concerned about, may it rest on an underlying joy that is found in Christ. Give that to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first reason for invincible joy is found in verse 18. Uh, Stefan covered this verse last week, but I told him I'm going to cover it again because it fits so well together here. And that is that Christ is proclaimed. Remember, he's being hassled here by people who maybe want to take his place in a, as an apostle, maybe want to undermine his ministry, maybe want to capitalize on his popularity, maybe want to undermine his ministry. And so they're preaching the gospel not with good motives, but with bad motives. And in the end, Paul is like, I don't care as long as the truth gets out. So he's rejoicing even in the criticism, even in the rivalry, even in the false claims that are coming against him because the gospel is being proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. And I think we can do the same here today. He's more confident in the message than the motive or the messenger. It's the gospel that's the power of God, not the preacher or his motives. Those are good. Those are important. The Bible speaks to that. But he's more confident in the message than the messenger. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul also knows the promise of Jesus in Matthew 24.14 that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This power of salvation will go to all nations. It will get there. It's a guarantee of Jesus. Paul knows that the end game is that all nations will be brought to him by this gospel. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on earth forever. 
What a beautiful thing. Paul has total confidence that the gospel will go forth, the gospel will win, and regardless of how it's preached or who's preaching it, ultimately, it's the power of God into salvation, and it will work. And it's working even when he's in jail. It's working even then. And so he's happy. He's happy the gospel is going forth, whether it's from him or from someone else. And the scriptures tell us that all of heaven is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. Right now, the gospel is being proclaimed in hundreds of thousands of churches in the United States and around the world. Someone is coming to faith right now, and heaven is rejoicing right now. Heaven has had a continual party since the resurrection of Jesus, because there's always been someone coming to faith in him. So while we can be and are and should, should be concerned about things around the world, wars, politics, finances, weather, income, the gospel is being pre preached, and you are gaining a brother or sister right now as we speak. And in that, we can rejoice. And I just want to thank you for being a church that cares a lot about the gospel being proclaimed in a lot of places. Your church is a model of generosity and encouragement to other churches and around the nation. I see that you have a Lottie Moon goal of $50,000. That's incredible. It's incredible that you would shoot high in order to fund those that would go and proclaim this gospel, that we might have more rejoicing and more rejoicers for eternity. Stefan told me that this church, plus 14 other churches that you've helped plant since 2018, there have been 391 baptisms, at, at least $738,000 given to missions from you and from other churches. And over 1,300 people gathered weekly in attendance to hear the gospel being proclaimed, even right now. So thank you for being a church that rejoices in the gospel being proclaimed, even if you aren't getting to see it this side of heaven. Continue to rejoice in that every day. He is rejoicing, in Paul here, is rejoicing in the, in the present over Christ being proclaimed and is emphatically and is emphatically promising to rejoice in the future, because he says, yes, and I will rejoice. He has this faith that not only will he rejoice in the Christ being proclaimed, but he also, in verse 19, says he will rejoice over some things that he anticipates in the future. So number two, his deliverance is assured. His deliverance is assured. So that's the second reason why he has invincible joy. He says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He has this confidence, for I know that. That's just another way of saying I have faith, right? The Bible calls this faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I have a conviction that I will be delivered from this situation. My circumstances are temporary. I will be delivered. The word for deliverance there is soteria. It's literally the word salvation. It's what the Bible talks about in terms of our internal salvation. I think he also might mean it here in terms of his temporary. I'm going to get out of jail eventually, one way or the other. But he's also, there's a little bit of this hopefulness of his eternal salvation, too, going, my circumstances are temporary, and in that I rejoice. My deliverance is assured. The final score is already set. This word for salvation is also, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used in Job 13, where Job, in the midst of his suffering has this to say while his friends are assailing him, while his suffering is overwhelming him, he says this in Job 13, 15 through 16, though he slay me, meaning God, yet I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his faith. So you get that, you get that. I will trust in him, but I also have questions for God, right? You ever been in that situation? Here's what he says, this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. He rejoices, Paul rejoices, because he knows the, he knows the what, that he will be delivered. He doesn't quite exactly know the details, 
whether that's going to be by life or by death, I'm getting out of this jail one way or the other. And it's good news for me either way. My deliverance is assured. And, and he makes this really fascinating thing. He's like, I know how God is going to deliver me. He's going to deliver me by two things. Notice this in verse 19. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. He kind of puts these two things together as being one of the mechanisms God's going to use to deliver him. He rejoices because he knows the how, the combination of the prayers of his friends and the help of the Spirit. It's assured, his deliverance is assured, but that doesn't mean that there isn't work to do in it. He's going to need the prayers of his friends. Isn't that interesting? God ordains the end, but he also ordains the means. God, God is going to do this through the ordinary prayers of these Philippian people. His deliverance is assured, and yet it still requires God's people to participate. And so he has total confidence because he understands that they love him and that they're going to be praying for him. He counts on their prayers. The means are the Spirit's help, God's indwelling Spirit that comes within every believer when they put their faith and trust in Christ. We get the Holy Spirit permanently to help us, to comfort us, to equip us, to strengthen us, to gift us. He knows I have that, but I also know that I have the prayers of my friends. What a great confidence in suffering to know that you have people praying for you, right? And he knows that his salvation will be in part because people are praying for him. You have not because you ask not. And he knows, I know I have because I know you're asking. It's your prayers that are going to be part of God accomplishing his certain end. Philippians 1.6, he says this earlier in the passage. You already looked at this probably a couple weeks ago. Remember, he already sold them this, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus, right? He already promised that. I, I'm sure you're going to be delivered. I know I'm going to be delivered. How is God going to do that? Through prayers and help of the Spirit. So Philippians 1.6, that promise that that good work will be completed is dependent on Philippians 1.19, that we help each other by prayer right? and the Holy Spirit. They don't contradict God's assurance and our participation. They work together. You want to get to the finish line, you want others to be delivered, then your prayers are essential to accomplishing God's ordained plan. I don't know how God does that. I don't know how the math of that works, that he ordains the future and it's dependent on our participation as well. I, I, don't, I haven't answered all that. One commentator puts it this way. God ordains the prayers of his people as the means through which he accomplishes his purposes, including his purposes for the per per perseverance of Christians in the faith and for their ultimate salvation. Paul's own prayers for the sanctification and final salvation of the believers to whom he wrote. I'm praying for you that you'll get to the end that I know God will get you to, and I'm asking you to pray for me for my deliverance, and I know I can count on it. What a great thing. That's part of his joy is knowing that people are praying for him. And then this help from the Holy Spirit, verse 19, it's the Greek word epigoria. I don't know. It's hard to pronounce. But it means to furnish or provide, to give, to grant, or support. Nourishment. The Holy Spirit is giving me nourishment each day to face my trials and to have joy. So let me just apply this to us here. Every single Christian needs help in their rejoicing and their persevering. You know that, right? That includes Paul, the great Paul, who's in a jail by himself, but knows he's really not by himself because he has Christians that are a thousand miles away that are praying for him, and he is not actually alone. And the triune God is present by his spirit with him in that prison. He needs help. Every single Christian needs help. That's why God provides a church is so that we would have help, that we would have prayer, that we would encourage one another, that we'd be able to share in the Holy Spirit. 
Every Christian needs help rejoicing and persevering. Human help through prayer, divine help through the Spirit, and it's available in Christ and available through Christ's church. So I would encourage each one of you to help each other by prayer. One of the things I do, I have right here, in fact, I have a little notification on my phone here. I, I've downloaded this app called the PrayerMate app. So if you just want some help and you have a phone that you can use an app on, I set an, a, a reminder for every 6 a.m. for this to go off and remind me to pray. And I just spend like, like literally just three, three or four minutes and I have five things I'm praying for. I'm praying for my own spiritual growth and my family. I have a different one of my kids that I'm praying for each day and some things I'm praying for them. And I have a list of all the people in my church. And every day it gives me a new family to just pray for. And I just pray for them. I have a couple things. And then I'm praying for Jean. I'm trying to share my faith with Jean. I want Jean to come to faith in Jesus. So I'm praying for Jean. And I pray for an unreached people group. The Baari people of India, 0% Christian, 456,000 of them, Hindu. I just do that every day. Like just a few minutes. Just so I would encourage you. It would be wonderful if every person that was, in, that was part of Connection Church was being prayed for. And you just knew that. Not only that you're praying for one another, but that you know that you're being prayed for. So if you're wondering where you could serve in this church, get a list of people and make sure every person gets prayed for it once a month. Be wonderful. It's essential for Paul, the great apostle. His deliverance is dependent on the prayers of his people. How much more for you and me in the trials that we face? That God has ordained prayer to be a part of this. And I would encourage you to pray, especially for your pastors. Because they bear great burdens. I love what Charles Spurgeon said as he was preaching this text. He was talking about preachers, and here's what he said. Oh, if you have been called of the Lord to shepherd his flock, and if you bear in your bosom the church of God and the cause of Christ and live for it with all your heart and your soul, you will not live many days without many heartbreaking trials, and you will greatly need the supply of the Spirit in answer to the prayers of your people. Your pastor's perseverance and joy in ministry is dependent on your commitment to pray for them. Their moral purity, their skill, all of that grows not just through their own efforts and discipline, for sure, but by your prayers. Your pastors are dependent on you. Paul is dependent on the Philippian church to continue apostling. And your pastors need the same thing, would encourage you to do that. Thank you for doing that for your church planners you support. I know you do that. Number three, verse 20, the first part of verse 20, we get another reason why there's invincible joy, and that is because shame is expired. This is great. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. The either eager expectation there is a combination word. Paul actually made the word up. We have no evidence in the history of the Greek language of it existing before this time. <laughs> and it's just this idea of I'm eagerly anticipating this intense expectation of something that's guaranteed. We might call it faith, right? So he's used different ways to describe faith, an eager expectation. He made up a word because he just doesn't even have the language to capture what this joy is like and his anticipation of it. One of the things we notice is that before the fall of humanity in the garden, Genesis 1.25 says this, as sort of the punchline before the fall begins to take place. He says this in Genesis 1.25. I guess it's a chapter before. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One of the defining marks of the world and of humanity before God, the Bible goes out of its way of all the things that it could say, that they were not in pain and they were not faced with disease and they did not have wars. Of all the things it says, it says they were not ashamed. 
And then once they fell in Genesis chapter 3, what marked them? Shame. Because of their broken relationship with God. They covered themselves. They made excuses. They hid, right? Because of shame. Because of sin. Of what sin had done to them. And here we get this call, this, this, this promise that, hey, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. There's nothing that I've done or that has been done to me, nothing that has been said to me that will stick. I will not at all be ashamed because Christ has redeemed me. Shame marked those who were alienated from God, and now those who are reconciled to God have no shame before Him. We have an enemy that wants us to doubt and be silent and worry. How does he use those? He's got two, two big weapons. Well, he's got several weapons, but two big ones are shame and suffering. He uses shame and suffering to silence us, to discourage us, to rob us of our joy. Here's one of the great good news things that Paul knows that we see in Revelation chapter 12, 9 through 11. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, who was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, the shamer of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him and shame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Isn't that awesome? Does that make you want to take the hill, take your sword and go? Like, <laughs> praise God, our victory, our victory is assured. Shame is banished. The accuser will be defeated. And Paul knows that. Even while he's Prison is meant to be a shaming experience for Paul. Like he's thrown there so that he'll quit saying, sharing the gospel. He's like, ah, this, this shame is temporary. In fact, it says in Hebrews 12:1 that Jesus despised the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him, right? And Paul's like, I get to follow in those same footsteps. Of trying, people are trying to shame me because of my Christian faith. And uh, I see the joy on the other side of that. Shame is expired. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 4, 16. If anyone suffers at a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. One of the benefits of the gospel is that Jesus has taken all of our shame, and we are now free and will be for eternity. So what brings you shame? You can think of things that maybe is eating your lunch, right? Just stealing, just, just stealing your joy, your confidence, keeping you from, being, from sharing your faith. It's one of two things. It's probably either sin and just know that Jesus has dealt with that. You are free. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So don't live in shame anymore. Or it's suffering. And Jesus is going to reward those who suffer faithfully. So it's a win-win. You have no need to live under shame anymore. Whether for things you've done or things being done to you, you are free. And Paul knows that. It's all about Jesus either way. He's dealt with the shame of our sin on the cross. And he will reward us for the shame of our suffering in the future. It's all about him either way. Which brings us to the second part of verse 20, which is that Christ is honored. But that with full courage, he says, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Again, we get this word full courage, which is just another word for faith. He found another way to just say faith. I have full courage. And that is meant to be a contrast with shame. Shame makes us shrink, hide. Courage makes us step forward, right? Come forward with full courage now. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
word for courage is boldness, frankness, stepping forward, stepping up, stepping out of hiding. The word honored means to make large, to praise the greatness of or honor highly. Christ is going to be glorified in me. That's a guarantee. Whether by life or by death, if he is glorified in me dying for him, great, may he be glorified. If it's about me living, if it's me winning, if it's me losing, if you want to read uh, more about this, you can read Hebrews chapter 11, where by faith some conquered, and by faith some were sawn in two. Right? I don't know what God has ordained for each one of us. Paul doesn't know what's ordained for him. He just knows that in the end, Christ will be honored. That's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. It's a certain. He doesn't know exactly how, whether that's going to be dying in this jail, whether that's going to be proclaiming the gospel out on the road again, whether that's going to be in a big church or a small church, whether that's going to be with his friends around or with his friends abandoning him. He's going to be honoring Christ either way. And the same is true for us. If we're in Christ, we have full assurance and full courage that Jesus will be honored in you. You don't have to question that. If you belong to him, he is being honored. Even in your fumbling, even in your failing, your perseverance honors him. Even in your ordinariness. Heard someone say, God must really love ordinary people because he made so many of them. <laughs> so it's not just the superstars, it's the ordinary faithfulness that pleases God because he made so much of it. The Heidelberg Catechism from the 1500s says this, What is your only comfort in life and death? And it is that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. John Piper says this, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Whether by life or by death, I belong to Jesus. And that's, he's glorified by me being satisfied in him. In light of that providence and that promise that God will be glorified in you, entrust the parts that you can't control into his hands. He is being honored. It's going to be okay. He knows how to weigh the scales. He knows how to wring out of your, even your failures, even your, even your struggles, your perseverance. He will be able to wring out some honor out of that. So don't worry about that. And I just want you to know, he is not disappointed that he saved you. He is not disappointed. He does not have buyer's regret that he went to the cross for you. You need to know that. I need to know that. I doubt that sometimes. But Paul doesn't doubt that. He may, he may, there may be a temptation that he's a failed apostle. Like, I'm in jail. I am, like, not winning right now. I'm not doing a very good job, right? He's like, no, that's not. Christ is not ashamed to have to call me his own and to give me his name. You're not a waste of his time. And reason number five, Christ is everything. Christ is everything to Paul. And he says this in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's life is pretty simple. The math is pretty simple, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. His joy rests on a simple equation. Is Jesus still raised? Yep. Then I have reason to rejoice. Is he still sitting on the throne? Yep. Is he still going to return? Yes then I really don't have any reason to not be joyful. It's a win-win reality created by believing in Jesus. In Greek here, actually, it's just the word is isn't in there. It's just for me to live Christ, for me to die gain. That's just his equation there. Proclaiming him to others, if he's to live and get out and proclaim him, great. I'm happy to honor God by helping believers, helping people come to know Jesus. If I die, I get to be done with all this and I get to go be with him and enjoy his presence forever. It's a win-win. One commentator said Paul's relationship with Christ was so close that his entire existence derived its meaning from him. 
Spurgeon says, Now this is the true life of a Christian. Its source, its sustenance, its fashion, and its end, all gathered up in one word, Christ. And I must add, its happiness and its glory. It's all in Christ. It's all there. All the riches. And so what do you do with Paul? Like, what do you do with this guy? Like, if you're trying to stop Paul, what do you do? Like, how do you discourage this guy? If you let him run free, he plants churches everywhere he goes. You throw him in jail, he converts all your guards. We read that already. If you kill him, then he's with Jesus. How do you stop a Christian who's totally contended with just Jesus? What do you do with that guy? How do you defeat that guy? How do you defeat a Christian who's rejoicing even when their physical circumstances don't seem to be working out? How do you explain that apart from Jesus being raised? It's such a wonderful testimony, and it's got to be so frustrating for the enemy. How do I beat this guy? I can't, I can't beat him. And what if Connection Church was filled with rejoicing Christians that love the proclamation of the gospel, that pray for every person in their church, especially their leaders, that eagerly and hopefully expect for shame to be eradicated? Like this is just, That's just not a weapon we're going to use on one another because of what Christ has done for us. And that has such courage always that Christ is going to be honored in them, whether you are doing awesome as a church or whether you're struggling or in, as your family. Christ is being honored even in the struggle. What if Connection Church could say that to live is Christ and to die is gain? And here's the good news is that this is not a pipe dream. These words spring up from a beaten up old man in the dank conditions of a first century Roman prison. This is battle-tested stuff. This is battle. This works. If you want to find reasons to not be joyful, you can find them. Just get on social media for a few minutes. You'll find lots of reasons to not have joy. But if you want invincible joy, Paul says you find it in Christ. This perspective is yours by birthright if you're a Christian. And it's yours by decree. You can have it. This is your future. Heaven is a place of great rejoicing. We can get started now, which is awesome. If you've taken Jesus by faith, you can lean into living this way if you want to. You don't have to, but you can. And that's what Paul's telling the Philippians. You can lean into this joy that I have too. This is better than just praying a prayer and getting out of hell free. That's great. That's a huge part of the gospel. But the gospel comes with more than that, which is this life of joy. Take hold of Christ like Paul did by faith repenting of our sins, putting our trust in Him, putting our hope in Him, and looking to Him for this nourishment that He died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and all who trust in Him have this available to them, have these resources in their account. We don't have to wait for circumstances to get better to have joy. In fact, that defeats the point of the gospel. The gospel came to us so that we could have joy even in the midst of our sufferings. Christ's, love Christ's fame more than your comfort. Pray and be prayed for often. Refuse to be ashamed of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you and resolve to honor him with your life or with your death. I just want to close with this from Johnny Erickson Tata. You know her story? Paralyzed as a teenager in a diving accident. Has been a wonderful testimony of just Christian faithfulness and communion with Christ. And she says this, I am sure, I can, I, I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven, and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, and he will know what I mean, because he knows me. 
He'll recognize me from the fellowship that, we, that I shared with him in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing has been a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I never would have happened, that would have never happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join in the party. At that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experienced on earth. And when we were able to stop crying and laughing, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. And I find it so pointedly that finally, at the point when I have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because Jesus will. That's ah, joy, right? There's an invincible joy made for concentration camps and wheelchairs and Roman prisons and whatever it is you're going through. It's made for you and your circumstances. All of it is found in Jesus and him alone. And you can have it. You can have it by faith, eager anticipation, right? Boldly grabbing hold of it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news. Just in a few verses, so much packed in here. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who has not yet taken hold of Christ by faith, has not received him, God, I pray that even now they would see what is available in Jesus. Not necessarily a change in circumstances. Maybe life temporarily will even get harder. But there's a joy and a certainty and a hope that is, um, that is worth everything. God, I pray for my friends in here. I don't know their stories or what they're going through, but whatever sufferings and struggles that might be stealing their joy, whatever shame might be hanging over them, God, I pray that they would know that in Jesus they can be free and they can have joy even as they mourn, even as they struggle. And God, we thank you that the, our, our, our future, our deliverance is assured, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. May that really be what we think and believe and experience together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.